everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode 10 of season 3 of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. Annalisa, when you watch a television show, and I know we both do a lot of that, (laughs) how often do you count the number of women or men in one episode? Say, for example, the last season of The Great British Baking Show. Did you count how many men and women were there? Heads up, new season is coming soon. Yay! (laughs) Um, But before you answer, have you thought about what implications that might have for the show itself? Um, Okay, so no. (laughs) I enjoyed the last season of The Great British Baking Show, and I'm looking forward to the next, but I do not remember how many women or men there were, and uh, no, I hadn't thought about the implications for that for the show. And um, wait a minute, are we taking a break from interviews? (laughs) UACS alum this week? We are not. We are indeed interviewing an alum today. And let me do a little connecting of the question that I asked. So while the Great British Baking Show has real people, not characters, we should be thinking about the representation of gender, race, ethnicity, and even sexuality in television and film. Oh, okay. So this is making more sense now. And I admit that most of my television watching is... (laughs) TV on Bravo and sports. Yes. But yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now, even on recent Real Housewives seasons, representation has come up. And you know what else is interesting here when it comes to reality TV? We get to hear from like people themselves. And we're not just like counting how many of who is on mm-hmm. an episode. Mm-hmm. Thinking about like various conversations that, for example, recent housewives have had about representation. But generally, I mean, I think in the shows that I'm watching, I do feel like I'm seeing greater diversity in in many areas. I think you're right. And in the past, even the recent past, the media haven't done such a great job of representation, especially in the area of sexual orientation. I think they're making improvements. Um, But what we do know from researchers like today's guest is that character portrayals in an entertainment or even a news context can wind up leading to negative perceptions about entire groups of people. Which is really concerning. Okay, so we need to talk about this more. And luckily, today's guest is going to break that all down for us. Today, we welcome Dr. Rhonda Gibson, the James H. Schumacher Professor in the Husman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina. And she is going to tell us about many things, like how sources journalists select to interview for their stories shape the narrative of that story. And she even tells us about things like how consumers respond to representation in advertising. This is such an important topic, and we are so fortunate to have the guest who's been doing research in this area for more than two decades. Send a very warm welcome to Dr. Rhonda Gibson. Welcome, Rhonda. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, although here is Chapel Hill. 
<laughs> That's the benefit. And I, I mean, Chapel Hill's lovely. Yes. Yeah. But it's not Tuscaloosa. It's well, <laughs> roll time. So, Rhonda, before we kick off asking you some questions about your research, um, I think that you used to do some work as a page designer. Oh, my um, gosh. Yes. Which, which doesn't sound exactly like professor life. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that work? Is it related at all to what you research now? No. It's related to my bank account when I was in graduate school. So when I was in the PhD program at Alabama, it was a brand new program, and they had a stipend. It wasn't extravagant, um, but I had not saved up any money to come to graduate school. It just sort of was a whim, and I needed to support myself with a little extra work. And so the alumni magazine... Uh, at the University of Alabama was looking for somebody to do page design. And I had learned when I was a student um, journalist, I had learned how to use something called PageMaker, which I don't think anybody uses anymore. And I could do very module design. And they were paying, I think, 20 bucks an hour, which in 1991 wow. or something, I was insane. I mean, yeah. I, d I don't know, maybe that was a typo, but that's what they paid me. So <laughs> I did that work to supplement my graduate school um, stipend. And I really enjoyed it because it was sort of cut and dried and not, it wasn't, it didn't take a lot of brain power. Mm -hmm. And my graduate work took every bit of brain power I had. So <laughs> that's where that came from. Nice. That's awesome. Since you are not currently at the University of Alabama, we'd love for you to give us some basic information about who you are and what you do. We call this the rapid fire section of the podcast. So I'm going to sure. let Annalisa lead it off. So first, where are you from and or where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a, oh. I was a Buckeye originally, but I'm not a Buckeye Ooh. anymore. Okay, that, that's good because this would have been a short conversation. No, I'm yes. totally joking. <laughs> totally joking. And you mentioned that you're in Chapel Hill now. How long right. have you been here? Well, this year is my 20th anniversary teaching no. at Chapel Hill in what is now the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, and it's had a variety of names. So 20 years. Wow. wow. Okay. And Go ahead, Annalisa. Sorry. When were you at the University of Alabama? The early 90s. I want to make it clear it's the 1990s, not the <laughs> 1890s. But I was there from 90 to 93. Finished my PhD in 93. Wow. Okay. Um, so I want to get a little bit um, of a better picture of kind of how you got into academia and the path that led you there. So what did the young Rhonda think she would be doing when she grew up? I thought I would be a newspaper reporter um, ever since my freshman year or first year in high school when um, my high school started its um, newspaper and my English teacher asked me if I would go to the junior senior dance and report on it. And I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I mean, we took a newspaper at home. Everybody did at the time, but I didn't know, you know, what newspaper reporters did or that I would want to do it. But it mixed two things that I really loved, and that's writing and asking people nosy questions. And so <laughs> I got to go to this dance as a first year student when you only had to be a junior senior to actually, you know, be able to go and dance. And I got to ask people questions and then write it up and they put my name on it. And it just, 
I, I got the bug. So I thought I would do that. I majored in journalism. Um, all my internships were um, newspaper internships, and that was my first job out of college, full-time job, um, was as a newspaper reporter. Um, and I really did intend to stay there forever. Ended up getting a, um, going to for a master's degree to understand some of the reporting I was doing better and some of the social issues behind it, but I had every intention of going back into the newsroom until I met Dolph Zillman, and I accidentally ended up with a PhD at the University of Alabama. <laughs> so that's a long story that I know you all do not have time for today. Maybe at a conference in the future, we can share that story a little more. Yes. So, okay. So now um, what I'm curious about is your scholarship. So can you get us an elevator pitch on your research? So, um, wow, I have sort of had two research lives. The first 10 or so years, maybe even more than that, um, I did a series, primarily experiments, um, but a series of studies looking at exemplification in um, journalism, in news reporting, how reporters, when they're writing about a social issue, so not a one-off, not like a wreck on I-40 or something, but writing about a larger issue, how they choose individuals to exemplify that. Um, you know, how they decide whom to interview, not the expert sources, but the people. So if you've got a story about, we'll say, breakthrough COVID cases, mm -hmm. how do you decide whom to interview about that? And then how do you balance those interviews or incorporate those interviews with data, with statistics? And then the effects of that combination of exemplification and data on um, people who read the stories or watch the stories if it's in or listen to the stories if it's, you know, electronic. And did just about every type of study you could do on that. Um, a group of folks, we started the work when I was in the PhD program. Dr. Zillman had some postdocs in from Germany and some um, local folks from Tuscaloosa. And we just did stories and, or studies and studies about that. And then I shifted um, after I got tenure at the <laughs> University of Alabama. It, I shifted to um, still within news, but looking at LGBTQ issues, how they were reported in the news, um, who the sources were, how the stories were covered, um, and then into the, some of the effects of that. Even dabbled a little bit with the effects of um, LGBTQ images and advertising. So mm -hmm. I switched, but stayed primarily within news and switched to LGBTQ issues. And more recently, I've really abandoned the news focus. Um, not, not just focused on news. Now I'm looking more broadly at messaging related to LGBTQ social movements. And messaging includes news, but it also includes advocacy groups and it just includes regular old people on social media. And so that's how, well, that's where I am now. Sorry about that long answer. No, no. Um, when you're my age, you have long answers. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question there related to your first kind of line of research, which is mm -hmm. the who's who you pick um, mm -hmm. all about the story. Well, who do you pick to be your research participants? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the folks we picked were not necessarily the best choice <laughs> in that they were journalism majors. So what we actually did in the beginning, because that's who was available, right? That we mm -hmm. could get into classes um, sometimes there were participant pools. Sometimes you just begged professors to let you go into their classroom and use their students um, as participants. But 
people who are thinking of a communications major are already thinking about this too much. So, um, right? I mean, we needed um, people who, when they read the news, didn't think about how the news was constructed. They just mm-hmm. read the news. Right. And right. so fortunately, with, you know, some grant money along the years, we have been able to branch out to non-journalism majors and, and um, also, you know, collaborating with folks in the psychology department because they always have participant pools. Mm-hmm. And so using those folks, but then we also just use some um, folks online. What? Why am I blanking on the um, platform you can use to get participants in boy? Oh, Qualtrix? No, no, we have used that since then, but the one before that, I'm totally blanking on what it was. Um, there's even been research on whether it's, you know, the same as random sampling and all of that. I am blanking on what. Turk. M Turk. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. M Turk. Yeah. M Turk. So, um, because you pay those folks and you want to pay them well enough that, you know, they we hope you pay attention to, you know, the work they're doing. Um, and so I don't know that that's ideal, but that is what we, um, the research teams that I've worked with over the years with that decided to do, to try to get away from your undergraduate um, mm-hmm. journalism major. It, also, there's a, very, a real gender um, skew there, too, because so many majors anymore are female. And the, mm-hmm. in our school here, our undergraduate majors, 72 or so percent female. Wow. 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 Of journalism, yes. I'm sorry. So, Go ahead. So, uh, Rhonda, I know with the journalism background, this shouldn't be too challenging of a question. But if you had to come up with a headline for mm. one of your more interesting findings, what would that headline be? So, the headline from the news research is that, and we put this in study after study, is that exemplars trump. We used to use that word. I'll put exemplars rule over um, base rate data. So exemplars are more powerful than base rate data. So if you um, write a story about the phenomenon of breakthrough COVID cases and say that it's a very small percentage, you give accurate data that maybe of people who are vaccinated, um, half of a percent have breakthrough cases, whatever it is, assuming it's a fairly small percentage. But then for the story, you interview four or five people who are fully vaccinated and still came down with COVID. What the reader's going to walk away with, even with that small percentage in there, the reader's going to come away with a much um, higher estimate of the number of people who are fully vaccinated who get breakthrough cases because the aggregation of that of those exemplars, that's more powerful. And that's longer than a headline, but we found that time and time again, regardless of how you put an exemplar, in the headline, in the story, in a photo, in a pull quote, um, exemplars, because we listen to people more than we do numbers. So I'll, that's the headline, I think, from the earlier research. I mean, I, yeah, that, I, I agree. And, 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 and I do statistics for, you know, a living, but Put, put a person in front of me and I right. will, <laughs> right. even if I understand the math, um, I, I, I can completely understand how that would be true. Yeah. Cognitive psychology tells us, you know, what we pay attention to, what we don't pay attention to, what we retain and why, because it's vivid, because it's more like us hmm. and because math is hard. At least I had a Barbie. <laughs> that said that. <laughs> So, Rhonda, I want to ask a follow-up question related to the more um, recent research. 
you've been doing. You had mentioned that you were looking at um, messaging and social issues Mm -hmm. and LGBTQ. And so what I'm wondering is, does this finding from the earlier study of news about exemplars, have you found the same when we're looking at social issues or is it a completely different line of research that you're doing? No, it, um, it gets a little murkier when you use issues that um, are emotional or that people have very strong opinions about. When In the exemplification research, we purposefully chose issues. We even made up diseases and made up things that people would have no preconceived notion on to see, you know, how it would work in their minds, the base rate data versus exemplification. But in social movements and social issues, the issues are there. We can't make mm-hmm. up a new movement and, you know, do research on social movements. And people have strong feelings. And so it um, it's much harder to change people's views when they already, you know, have views on that. So exemplification research, that's not as strong when people have preconceived notions. And so what the research um, in social movements, and I've limited my work specifically into LGBTQ social movements, primarily the marriage equality movement, is that um, exemplars work in a different way. The power of exemplars is more towards the idea of spiral of silence. That if you see, for example, for marriage equality, I don't know if you remember, but it seemed like the whole world put the red equal sign on their Facebook profile. Um, my sister did that. She didn't even know what it meant. But, um, but friends of her Proud moment. Doing, so Proud she moment. did it because, you know, like-minded. And so if you were anti-marriage equality, anti-same-sex marriage, for whatever reason, and you see so many people with a visual indication that they're for same-sex marriage rights, just the spiral of silence happens. It really does with social media that you're less likely to speak out about that topic. You're less likely. Mm-hmm. Now, there are exceptions to this. You know, some people are just going to say their views regardless. But it, but overall, you're less likely to publicly speak out um, that you are not for um, marriage rights for same-sex couples. And you're also more likely to think it's inevitable that, is, in this case, that same-sex marriage would become legal. And once people think it's inevitable, that's when public opinion really starts to shift and that you, you sort of become resigned to it. Now, again, there are some people who are still hardcore against it, even though marriage equality, um, it's been, you know, since the Supreme Court ruling in 2015, it's been the law of the land across all 50 states and whatever other territories we have. So that's where exemplification works. The more you can show people who have this point of view, the more powerful it is. But it's a little different mechanism behind it. It's not so much just estimating risk, and risk is what we looked at a lot with exemplification. So um, there's some of the same things at play, but it's not exactly the same. So with your research, I mean, some of it seems like I I can, oh yeah, I I get that. When we think about traditional academics um, mm-hmm. and faculty, our, our research often lives in journal articles and journals that, mm-hmm. you know, not, not everyone out there is reading, um, <laughs> I'm guessing. Um, yeah, I, I would guess that too. <laughs> the application of your work, does it make it out of those journal articles? Um, well, 
for my more recent work, I actually ventured into the scariest world. I thought, and I thought I'd never be there, and that's writing a book. Now, I didn't oh, an academic wow. press. It's um, went with Rutledge, which has some academics, but also has other readers. I don't know that people read it. So, you know, it's certainly not like doing more public-facing scholarship, like going on the you know circuit and talking to um, social movement groups or advocacy groups. Um, but I have done on various campuses, I've talked to LGBTQ groups. I do this without charging anybody. For one thing, I don't know that, you know, maybe they are getting their money's worth when I don't charge. But just to talk about what I've learned and how you message, how you um, can tailor your messages, how you choose whom to share your message, who you want to share your message. And what platforms you use if you are trying to change minds specifically on LGBTQ issues. I don't feel like I'm an expert in social movements in general, and I really wasn't interested in looking in social movements in general. I wanted specifically to look within LGBTQ issues and the specific history of that um, social movement for LGBTQ rights and ways to tailor messages just to that. And I've talked to a lot of student groups. Now, my problem with myself doing that is I really wanted to write the book and do the research very neutrally in the sense that I'm looking at, you know, how you message to reach your goal. I will say, however, I have not offered my services or nor have I been asked to speak to any group that is anti-marriage equality. <laughs> so there you go. Um, you know, I am not an activist, but I have... Um, I've spoken to some groups and not to others. So um, it has, you know, gotten out of journal articles. And then it also has gotten into the classroom. I created a course here at UNC. I don't teach it anymore, but I created it in 2003, and it's called Sexual Minorities and the Media. Hmm. At the time, we didn't have any openly LGBTQ faculty in the, what was then the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And I thought there was a need for a course. Now we do have faculty who are open. And the I think the climate has shifted. And I don't think a white, cisgender, straight female needs to be teaching that course, just to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not teaching it anymore, but happy that, you know, others may decide to teach that. Um, so it crept in and then I taught that course. And then every class I teach, um, I work LGBTQ issues in where appropriate. Um, and so both my news research and my LGBTQ research has come into the classroom. I teach journalism courses. I teach PhD courses in theory, how to be a doctoral student. In, and I cannot imagine not bringing my teaching into the classroom. It's about the only, I mean, my research into the classroom, because I don't know that much of other stuff. So at least when I'm talking about my work, I'm going to get it right. Hmm. So as a follow-up to what you were just talking about, about this, your own scholarship, making it into the classroom, I know that over the course of your 20 years at UNC, um, you've had the opportunity to work in an administrative capacity. Can you talk a little bit about how you found the balance between you know, the commitment to teaching and research, but then also having to figure out everything else that comes, mm -hmm. you know, with the job of being an administrator. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure I was particularly good at that. I made it work. <laughs> um, 
for one thing, my administrative roles, I was very selective in them and that all the administrative roles I've had have been dealing with graduate programs and graduate students. And that, I think, was strategic. So yay for me being wise in that. Um, because that that's an area that I know a good bit about and that um, feeds me emotionally mm-hmm. and that um, regen- uh, energizes me. And so that was good. However, um, when I had my largest admin roles, I wasn't as productive in terms of scholarship. To write the book, I, I really had to wait till I had cycled out of an admin role and then not, ex- not take another one for a while so that I could do the research and write the book. Um, and I know people who managed to do both brilliantly. And um, my advisor, Dolph Zillman, was um, head of the graduate program at Alabama when I was there and putting out journal articles and books. Um, and I think he's human, but I'm pretty sure he's human. I know he's not fully machine, right? But I mean, it was just amazing. And so I yeah. feel like I've never lived up to that. But a lot of us haven't lived up to Dolph Zillman. You know, I mean, he's, he's just, he's, he's not a regular exemplar, right? He's not a representative <laughs> right. exemplar. Right. So I, I don't recommend avoiding admin service. I think it makes you more connected to an institution. It helps you better understand how it works. And you can actually make a difference in some, in some mm-hmm. capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I was not terribly good at um, limiting the time I spent on those roles to maybe what was expected. You know, when you get your percentages, 20% this, 20% that. Admin yeah. always exceeded for me what it was supposed to, just to be honest. So I'm going to ask a kind of a broad question here. Um, So when you think about your professional career um, Mm -hmm. and all all of the roles and all of the research and all of the teaching, um, what are you most proud of? Wow. So I'm actually proud that I wrote a book. I don't know that I'm just going to say I'm proud of that book. It was my first book. And I, you know, I think it was, it's okay. Um, but I did it. I mean, I was trained as a journalist, right? If I wrote, you know, 800 words, I was done. And right. then I was trained right. to do journal articles. And then they got up to 8,000 words. And yay for that. But there were, you know, there were parts of them that were pretty, you didn't have to think that. I mean, you're writing the methodology, you just write what you did. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as writing a full book. And so I tackled it as a sole author. I'm so proud that I was willing to tackle it and that I got somebody to publish it. But that, that sort of low level pride, because I just, even if I look in the offices next to mine on either side, I've got folks who are writing multiple books and they're just really brilliant. <laughs> so I think what I'm most proud of and where I live, the, how I live vicariously through is my PhD students. I have had the opportunity to mentor some really terrific folks and to work with them in the classroom, to work with them on scholarship and just to help them navigate a doctoral program and then getting a job. And um, I get a little emotional with this because they, I'm just looking at them like, how did this happen? And I realize your advisor only does so much. That's how that happens, right? You're not going to kill somebody, but you're also not responsible for, you know, you don't get to take credit for everything they've done. But now I stay in touch with my former students and their families, and I hear about their successes and sometimes their frustrations, and that is what I'm most most proud of. 
it doesn't go on a Vita in the same way. You know, you right. list the people you yep. mentored, but then mm-hmm. it's just a list like, oh, yeah, I chaired this committee. But if I were a Vita of my life, if you were to look at my texts where people I take, just people, if something happens in my life, who I contact about it, um, it's really a lot of my former students. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's what it is. <laughs> that's cool. But I think I like the idea of having a life CV because as you just said, you know, we put things that kind of represent checking off a box, you Mm -hmm. know, I chaired this dissertation, I was on this committee, but there's so much more to that. And so I love your idea and think we should work offline on making that more (laughs) widely accepted in the academy. I mean, you've heard of people who um, have failure CVs, right? Like this is the piece that didn't get accepted, or this is, you know, the class that I taught when I got tor- horrible evals. I actually find that liberating. Yes. To think of that. I mean, you would—that's counterintuitive because who wants to list all your failures? But just acknowledging them and and that other people that you you're not alone, and that yet you still are employed, you know, and not in prison or all of that. So I think. Um, these ways to step out of our normal um, evaluation processes. I think that's that's good for the soul to do that. You just don't show the provost those things. <laughs> right. So shifting gears on you maybe just a little bit, I know when you were at UA, you had an opportunity to interact with Dr. Jennings Bryant. And I was wondering if you had... Um, a great Jennings story that maybe you'd be willing to share. I do. And it's actually not R-rated or anything or not inappropriate. (laughs) I mean, um, both Dr. Bryant and Dr. Zillman, when they were at Indiana University, worked on um, pornography research. Mm -hmm. And so there are stories from those days, but I was not a part of that. Um, (laughs) And so I actually met Jennings Bryant um, right as I started the program. I worked for him the first year doing research, interestingly, trying to quantify both the um, monetary and psychological impact of football games in Tuscaloosa. And um, that was a lot of fun because it was a way to do research and hate Auburn at the same time. But um, and then he also taught the research methods course I took my first semester. And even though I had done um, coursework in master's in women's studies, I'd never taken a research methods course because women's studies program was more of a critical program. So that was all brand new to me. But he made it very accessible. I'll always remember that. But my story is not so much about that. It's more about um, the off-campus mentoring and socializing that he did with a number of us. So the program was brand new then. I was in the second... um, class admitted into the program. So nobody had graduated yet. And a number of us were actually first-generation students, you know, especially first-generation graduate-level students. And he and Mrs. Bryant did so much entertaining at their home, such gracious hosts, good food, you know, the drinks were flowing. And that's when I think I got more from Dr. Bryant than anywhere else. I remember one conversation he had with a group of us. And we were just asking him, not, you know, about research methods, but like, how do we navigate this program? Mm -hmm. What do we need to be focusing on? How should we spend our time? What is a CV? (laughs) How do we get a job? And so he, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday, but it was probably in 1991. 
um, he very kindly but firmly told us that the days of academics being able to live their lives in their labs and ignore the rest of the world, that those days were ending. And he said, if you want to be successful going forward, you need to be comfortable in the classroom. And that was one thing he stressed. It's not just research. You need to be comfortable in the classroom, in the lab, with administrators, with donors, and mm -hmm. with people in the state of Alabama, because that's where we were at the time. And that's not necessarily how I was trained in the rest of the PhD program, but that's one thing Dr. Bryant stressed. And he walked that walk. He knew people across the state. He knew legislators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He certainly knew administrators. He became, you know, one. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that it's as easy as he made it seem. It probably wasn't as easy for him as it's, we thought it was. But he envisioned public scholarship before it was really in vogue to talk about public scholarship. I don't think I've succeeded necessarily in that. Um, I'm uncomfortable putting myself out on social media, especially doing LGBTQ research. Just to be honest with you, I don't want to be trolled. Um, right, right. But, but understanding that you've got those responsibilities and that that will just actually make you more successful in your career. That was very good advice to give. And I thank him for that. I regret that I never, <clears throat> excuse me, I regret that I did not take time to thank him for that while he was still living. But I think what you're talking about and what you're describing about Jennings as a person, quite frankly, is sort of the theme that we've heard across the guests for season three. So thank you so much for sharing that. I sure. So I, I want to ask, um, in light of your just huge career, and you, you mentioned some some uh, work as an administrator, and you, mm -hmm. you and kind of going from journalism, succinct, 800 words to write <laughs> an entire book. What what keeps you motivated? I, I'm sure, I'm, I mean, I'm guessing mm -hmm. um, that there are times where it's like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, or frustration. What what keeps you going and, and pursuing? Well, I think the shift away from journal articles as my primary form of scholarship into looking at a book and then thinking more broadly across fields. I mean, I was really focused in media effects and news. I mean, hyper-focused for years on that. And now what I'm talking about crosses fields, and it's not based just on one theory or on one methodology. And, I, and that is almost like starting again, mm -hmm. um, which it's safer to do it once you have tenure and have been promoted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's lovely to learn. I've been to conferences that I would not have gone to, and I've done reading outside of my discipline, which I wish I'd done years ago. But um, <laughs> you know, and so that keeps me going because it's not old; it's new for me. Yeah. And I'm looking now at um, following up on my book on same-sex marriage and social media. Now looking at how the issue of marriage has sort of transformed into one that's LGBTQ rights versus religious freedom rights. And so that is how I keep going because I've never, I'm not a law scholar, I'm not a religious <laughs> studies scholar. Um, I'm looking at those topics and so it is new for me. It's not old and it's exciting. And I also, I still do um, journal articles, but almost exclusively co-authoring with graduate students. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and so my beta looks a little weird because here's a study like, what's that got to do with? But that's a great thing about tenure and promotion. I right. can do that, right? I yeah. don't have to say it all fits in in this really neat package. Yeah. That's very true. That's definitely a benefit of, of tenure and getting to the point where you do feel like you have more freedom. Right. Um, so before we wrap this up, Ron, I'm going to have to ask this question that may or may not have come from one of your former graduate students. Uh. Did you actually name one of your cats after a Tennessee Vol football player? Um, I did. Um, I have sad <laughs> news that Peyton died in April, but Peyton Oh, old. I'm sorry. So, um, we have, and I, I'm holding up a picture, and I even I know enough about podcasts to know that nobody can see it. Um, <laughs> but for years, we had Peyton, Eli, and Archie. <laughs> and um, now Peyton was the only one who went to Tennessee. Eli and Archie went to the University of Mississippi. But still, because we had three kittens, and we named them Peyton, Eli, and Archie. And um, Peyton's no longer with us. But I still think of Peyton and have pictures all over my office of Peyton. I have one picture of my husband and about seven of Peyton. Um, and so, yes. As it should be. Right. Yes. And one of my former PhD students, um, when she graduated, to say thank you. Um, actually, I was not her advisor, um, but I did a lot of work with her. She actually got a signed football helmet off eBay, a Peyton Manning signed football helmet. And that's here in my office. And that means a lot not just because it's signed by Peyton Manning but because a PhD student got that for me so and anyhow if you my office is filled with glorious Tennessee orange and um (laughs) yes I do I named so they're my children right if I had human children I would have named them Peyton Eli and Archie at least Peyton (laughs) you could use for a girl or a boy right so I've never met any of the Mannings um someday someday There's plenty of time, plenty of time. So, Rhonda, we'll wrap it up with another fun question, I hope. Um, When we are able to go back to conferences in Mm -hmm. in, what is one of the conferences that you're looking forward to attending and where are you looking forward to traveling? So that's pretty easy. ICA <laughs> in Paris. In Paris, so I'm gonna go, yes. I'm going to tell you, of course, that the reason I'm choosing that conference is because it's a great interdisciplinary communication conference. You know, a lot of areas paired with communication. It has a fabulous and very well-established LGBTQ division. Mm-hmm. And it's in Paris. <laughs> right. So, and I'm on leave next semester. Um, for the first time, I have a scholarly leave. And it comes with some pretty significant research funds that I can use to go to Paris. So, Yay! So that's the easiest question anybody could ask me. <laughs> well, we are trying to see if we can pull together a reunion of revise and resubmit guests at ICA in Paris. Oh, that would be lovely. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Well, Rhonda, we would just want to thank you for um, making time in your day to speak with us. It's been so much fun catching up. This has been great. Thank you so, so much. I enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you all in person. Awesome. Take care. Bye, Rhonda.